when he saw Jesus. He fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet the news about him spread all the more, so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their illnesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. One day Jesus was teaching, and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal those who were ill. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say, get up, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home, praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I have, come not, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is the word of the Lord. Super. Thanks, Angus. Do, um, do keep that open. That would be a great help. Um, as we look at God's word together, let me lead us in a prayer. Let's pray. Lord, 
Dear Father, we thank you so much that we can meet together uh, in peace and freedom to study your word this morning. Please be at work in our hearts by your spirit, we pray, uh, that we might see Jesus more clearly and that we would uh, love him more too because of it. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, ex-Prime Minister David Cameron once offered uh, a million pounds to whoever could solve the world's biggest problem. Uh, That's quite clever, really, because no one could agree on what the world's biggest problem was. So his money was probably fairly safe. Um, Lots of people weighed in with ideas. Climate change, uh, world poverty, disease, war and terrorism. Uh, All enormous problems in their own right. Uh, But I wonder what you would say is the world's biggest problem. I wonder what you would say your own biggest problem is. In answer to uh, Cameron's question, um, the Times newspaper reprinted a famous response to a very similar question in 1910. Uh, That question was, What uh, is the biggest problem in the world today? And one response, now quite famous, uh, Dear Sir, I am. Yours, G.K. Chesterton. It's a good answer, isn't it? It's quite theologically astute uh, as well. You see, uh, he didn't mean that he alone was the world's biggest problem. That would be quite a claim, wouldn't it? But people are. You and me. Jesus would uh, go one step further. Uh, He would clarify the answer to uh, this question by saying that sin is our biggest problem. Our rebellion against God, both for the world and also for each of us as individuals. That our sin is the biggest problem. Uh, If we go back to uh, the beginning of the Bible, (laughs) settle in, this is going to be a long one, Um, we can read in Genesis uh, about how sin, that is rebellion against God, wrecked the world and wrecked humanity's relationship with God. So when Adam and Eve disobeys God and live in his world and ignore the one rule that they were given, this curse of sin enters the world like a virus. And the implications are far-reaching. So uh, the, uh, they, they were cast from God's presence and, and out of the garden. The world was broken. The world is broken so uh, the ground uh, becomes really hard to farm. Childbirth becomes difficult and painful. Elements of work which were once so satisfying become frustrating We know that loneliness and danger enter the world. And the ultimate enemy, death, becomes an inevitability, an inevitable reality because of that rebellion. The world is out of kilter. And we feel that today, don't we? The world is out of kilter. You only need to open the newspapers to know that that is true. I had a flick through the newspaper this morning. 
A tornado killed 24 in Mississippi. Police in France are clashing with protesters. You could read about war ravaged Ukraine. Mortgages are higher than ever. Teenagers have been uh, charged with the murder of another teenager in Northampton. Makes for grim reading. Uh, the world is, is not as it's supposed to be. And we feel that in different ways. Uh, we will feel that in our own lives in different ways too. I wonder what you would say your own biggest problem is. Maybe a, a recent diagnosis. A particularly difficult child. Maybe unmet expectations in marriage. Loneliness. The rising cost of living in a mortgage that is becoming increasingly difficult to, to cope with. Uh, accusations have been leveled at God that he just doesn't care about the state of our world or about uh, us, humanity. Some consider that uh, if there is a God, that he's distant uh, and, and that he's uncaring. Others think that perhaps he's lost control of the world, that uh, he's not powerful to act, that he doesn't have the authority. Still others have claimed that he's capricious and mean-spirited, like a, a child with a magnifying glass burning ants. Our passage this morning just uh, shows just how much he cares for the state of, of our world. Like so often, uh, the Bible turns our preconceptions uh, on, it, on, on their heads. Um, it tells us about how he deals with the world's biggest problem. And so it's my prayer this morning that as uh, we, we look at these verses, that we will see more of the real Jesus and that we would want to run to him uh, in faith and to see him as the one who's got all authority in heaven and on earth. And that he chooses to use that authority to solve our biggest problem. Uh, to go to the cross, to forgive us of our sins. Well, let's dive in. Uh, we're presented with three different events here. Uh, three different stories deliberately grouped together uh, by Luke, uh, who we were told in chapter 1. Uh, took pride in putting together an orderly account. There's no accident that these three um, events are put in this particular order. Uh, they're not parables. Uh, they're, 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 um, they're not stories that Jesus told, but real verifiable events that, that really happened. And when stories like this are grouped together in the Bible, there is always a reason. Uh, we're supposed to find links or parallels or contrasts between them. I've, um, I've benefited hugely from trying to do that this week. So a leper, a, a paralytic, and a tax collector. Each one in their own way in desperate need of Jesus. Let's walk through uh, the events uh, briefly as we uh, look at our first point, which is that Jesus cares about the state of our world. Jesus cares about the state of our world. He is uh, going around Galilee, and it's fairly early on in his public ministry, uh, but clearly the word has spread about this man. He's got quite a following, and even the religious elites are beginning to come from all over to see what he is about. 
From the early accounts of uh, Luke's gospel, uh, we can read that he's already healed lots of people from various illnesses and ailments. Uh, He's preached with authority and already claimed to be the fulfillment of the law in the synagogue. We know he's cast out an evil spirit. And so uh, from our verses then, a, a man with leprosy approaches Jesus And this in and of itself is a a bold thing to do, to approach somebody when you've got such a dreadful and contagious disease, and the law said you had to keep away from everybody. That was unthinkable in the first century, right through the Middle Ages. Lepers were outcasts, physically deformed. Uh, They were contagious, stigmatized, cast out of the society, unable to work or uh, to live in the town even. They were left alone to die. A miserable, miserable existence, lonely. Uh, And so for this leper to approach Jesus, he must have been absolutely desperate. We read in verse 12 of his desperation, when he saw Jesus... He fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. This man is desperate. Jesus is his only hope. Um, Do you see the faith that he has in Jesus? If you're willing, you can do it. There's no doubt in the man's mind. He's heard the stories. Uh, And Jesus reaches out. And he touches the man. He touches the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. And immediately, uh, the leprosy left him. He's totally willing, uh, totally able, uh, has total authority over this terrible disease. Let's change the picture for a moment. We we see the same with the paralyzed man. Um, The paralytic and his friends... They were just as desperate to get this man in front of Jesus. Being a paralytic was almost as difficult as being a leper in the first century. Uh, This man couldn't walk, uh, so he couldn't work. There's no healthcare system to to take care of him. He's a drain on the community without prospects and without hope. This time, uh, Jesus is in a house. And there's a huge crowd hoping to get a glimpse of him. And they've surrounded the house, so much so that um, no one can get near it. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law have come from far and wide, we read. Uh, They'd come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. This is a seriously intellectual and religious crowd that's gathered because of Jesus' growing reputation. The bishops and the theologians have come from everywhere. So some men carrying the paralyzed man on a mat, they tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. But so enormous is the crowd that they couldn't get anywhere near him. And in their desperation, and their faith in Jesus is is so strong, they they climb onto the roof of the house, probably a flat roof, I, I guess. There are probably steps at the back up to it. But you can imagine, Jesus is sitting at the uh, the kitchen table A sprinkling of sawdust kind of trickles down in front of him. And as he looks up, he he sees uh, a growing hole emerging 
uh, in the ceiling. Faces uh, emerge, uh, looking in as the hole gets bigger and bigger. And then before you know it, a person lowered down on a mat uh, by, by ropes descends and gently lands on the kitchen table in front of him. It is an extraordinary scene. I think we know these verses quite often, don't we? And we sort of take them for granted. But this is, this is desperation to get this man in front of Jesus. We'll just fast forward for a moment to verse 24. And we will come back to this. Uh, but we'll just fast forward to verse 24. He says to the paralyzed man... I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. So he uh, stood up in front of them, took the mat that he was lying on, and went home, praising God. And everyone was amazed and gave thanks to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things this day. That is a remarkable healing, isn't it? God cares about the state of our world and each one of us. You see, in Jesus, we see him reversing the effects of that broken world. In the one who is totally able and totally willing to heal the physical ailments of this man. He's reversing uh, the curse in different ways. The curse of sin. The reason that the world is out of kilter. He cares for the state of our world. Quick scene, sh- uh, sh- scene shift again uh, to the city and uh, the tax collector's booth where a Jew named Levi sits going about his day's work. We need to think a bit harder about the context of Levi's life uh, to see how significant Jesus' words are to him. So tax collectors were the enemy. <laughs> Significantly, uh, they... Uh, They had a a reputation for overcharging and using Roman soldiers to bully and to intimidate those who weren't paying their taxes on time. They got people to pay massively high interest rates on late payments, would have skimmed off a fair portion for themselves. And the Romans didn't really care just as long as they received what was due to them. The tax collectors uh, were, were also largely shunned from their communities. Either they were the Romans occupying uh, Jewish territory, uh, and so they were the enemy, uh, or in Levi's case, he was a Jew working on behalf of the Romans, and so would have been especially hated, especially ostracized and lonely by the Romans, but by his own community as well. We don't know a great deal about Uh, Levi's life up to that point but we can guess at some of those things probably he was seen as as treacherously greedy and self-serving helping the enemy's regime and occupation of his own homeland he was the worst of the worst and yet this is the man that Jesus calls to be his disciple this is the man that he will in time rename Matthew who writes the gospel. He calls him by name. And that is hugely significant given the context of Levi's life. He is calling him to friendship, out of loneliness, to friendship with himself and other disciples. He calls him away from his his friendless role and calls him back into a community of love 
and acceptance. Look at who Jesus comes to seek and to serve. A leper, a paralytic, and a tax collector. At dinner that night, Jesus eats with loads of other tax collectors and sinners, others on on the margins of society. Luke deliberately, intentionally, shows us that Jesus cares about the physical and emotional state of his people. He cares about the real details of real lives. But more than that, he has the authority to roll back the effects of sin on our broken world. Now, we need to be careful here. Uh, Luke is, is not saying that these men necessarily have their diseases because they have sinned. That their leprosy or the paralysis is not necessarily a direct result of their sin. But it is a symptom of a broken world that's been brought about uh, by humanity's rebellion against God. The world is out of kilter. And the big thing I want us to see from from this first uh, section is that we have a God who sees and who deeply, deeply cares. You see, he is for the brokenhearted. He's for those who feel that life is falling apart. He's for those who feel they just can't get through the day. He doesn't promise healing from physical or emotional ailments now, necessarily. But he is a God who cares. He's a God who works for the good of those who love him and who offers hope uh, in sorrow. And we know from elsewhere in the Bible that one day he will make all things new. We can read those wonderful words in Revelation 21. Uh, When he remakes our broken world, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things uh, has passed away. What a church we too would be if we modelled that to one another. As we got involved in the details of one another's lives, uh, in the pain and, and the sadness that lots are going through. If we were a church that really followed Jesus in that and we looked after one another. We cared for those uh, for whom it feels like life is, is, is very, very difficult. What a church we would be uh, if we followed him in that. He cares about the state of our worlds. Uh, he remains totally sovereign over it. And so however you are feeling this morning, cast your anxieties on him. Uh, because uh, he cares for you. That's the first thing. Uh, He cares for the state of our world. Uh, The second thing, uh, more briefly, is that he cares for the state of our hearts. He cares for the states of our hearts. You see, it's striking in in all of these encounters uh, that the healing is almost incidental to the main event. Yes, he's interested in healing the leper and the paralytic and the tax collector physically and emotionally. But Luke wants us to see that Jesus also primarily meets the most urgent need, the most desperate need of these people. And that's quite shocking in and of itself. Because on the face of it, we can see what their most urgent need is. 
But that's not what Jesus says. You know, what is the world's biggest problem? I am. My sin is. You see, he doesn't just deal with the exterior for the leper and the paralytic and the tax collector. He comes to deal with the interior. He comes to deal with their hearts, with the sin inside. So when the paralyzed man comes to him, the first thing he says, which is deeply shocking for us now, but for uh, people at the time as well, the first thing he says is, son, your sins are forgiven. And so it looks like Jesus has failed key stage one of pastoral theology. (laughs) And that is shocking that he says that. It doesn't go down very well with the religious elite uh, who, uh, who can forgive sins, but God alone, they say. But then Jesus, I think, poses a real teaser. He says, uh, which is it easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or, or get up and walk? I suspect over coffee, uh, if you were to ask that question of, of us, we would probably fairly sort of split down the middle of the fence on, on the answer. I, I guess, um, you know, to, to, to lots of us sort of Western liberals, I suppose, of course it's easier to say that your sins are forgiven because no one can tell whether it's worked or not. I could claim to forgive your sins now and uh, you prove that it hasn't worked. It's an easy thing to say Whereas for me to say, rise, get up, and walk to a paralytic would demand immediate and visible evidence. But that's not the point Jesus' audience would necessarily take from this. You see, they're not made up of, of Western liberals. This is a highly literate gathering of theologically conservative elite. And they, to say, your sins are forgiven, for them, that would be an impossible thing to say. You see, that is blasphemy. They would say, only God can say that. Which is it easier to say? And yet at the same time, to say, rise and walk, is also an impossible thing to say. And Dr. Luke, for he is a doctor, The author of this gospel, he knows that as well as anyone. But in order to demonstrate his authority on earth today, to achieve that which is spiritually impossible for man to do, Jesus does that before their eyes, which is physically impossible for man to do. By the miracle, he demonstrates visibly that he has all God's authority to do the spiritual thing. He says that you would know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And immediately, uh, he stood up in front of them, uh, took what he'd been lying on, and went home praising God. I wonder whether you saw that little title that Jesus uh, gave himself there. Uh, Did you spot it? The Son of Man. The Son of Man. 
Uh, the, the Son of Man was uh, the most exalted title that Jesus could possibly have chosen for himself. Uh, the Son of Man is the figure in the Old Testament to whom God gives all authority and all power to rule over all creation for all eternity. The Ancient of Days, God says uh, of the Son of Man, to him were given dominion and glory, a kingdom that all nations, people, and languages should serve in. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, his kingdom one which will not be destroyed. In Daniel 7, the Son of Man. This is the title that Jesus gives himself. The Son of Man is the final judge, the ultimate bar of accountability. He is the one who will summon everybody, the one to whom we will all be called to give an account on our final day. The Son of Man is the one who you will face and I will face at the end of our life in judgment. And Jesus says, in order that you might know that I, the Son of Man, have authority. Where's the geographical reference at the end of that? Has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he says to the paralyzed man, take your mat, go home. And immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he'd been lying on and went home praising God, dancing and singing. Although it doesn't say that, but I imagine that was probably true. That's exactly what he would have done. Jesus doesn't, uh, he, sorry, he does the, the, the physically impossible in order to prove his authority and power to do the spiritually impossible. This miracle is a demonstration that Jesus has all of God's power and authority on earth to forgive sins. The same was true of the leper as well. Don't tell anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest, Jesus says, and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded. There's a spiritual element here as well. Um, as a leper, a priest, only a priest, could, could deem you clean or unclean. And that person wouldn't have been able to worship in the synagogue if he was unclean. The implication here is that when Jesus touches the man, which is extraordinary in itself, the man becomes clean and Jesus doesn't become unclean. By sending him back to the priest, he's demonstrating to the religious elite, this man is now made clean. Physically and spiritually, he now has right standing with God once more. You see, he can go into the synagogue and worship He's no longer cut off from his spiritual community because of Jesus. Yes, Jesus heals his leprosy, but he's most interested in his spiritual state. The same is true of Levi. Why do you eat with sinners, the Pharisees ask? The very fact that they even ask that question is a little insight into how spiritually blind they, they are. Jesus utters that now famous response, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, we know that to be true. He alone can offer that repentance because he alone is the son of man 
with all authority on earth to forgive sins. And as we move towards Easter and the cross, we see that Jesus stretches out his arms uh, upon the cross, taking uh, that sin upon himself as he dies for each one of us, for all those who would turn and follow him as Levi has. I hope you're conscious of your sin. If you're not conscious of having offended the holy gods, then you haven't really begun in the Christian faith at all. You see, God says we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our mind and with all our soul and with all our strength. Can anyone say that they've done that? We said the confession together earlier. Sometimes we say these words uh, as part of the confession. We say, I have sinned against you in thoughts and word and deed by what I've done and by what I've left undone. I've not loved you with my whole heart. I've not loved my neighbor as myself. And that is true of me. And if you're anything like me, uh, and and the Bible says that you are, uh, it's true of you as well. Jesus elsewhere in Mark chapter 7 says, Out of a person's heart come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. There is no amount of stuff that we can do to deal with our internal problem. I can't work off my sin. You see, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And because there is this ultimate bar of accountability, either we will face God's judgment at that bar of accountability, uh, or on earth, we have the possibility of the forgiveness of sins in the Lord Jesus. Feel the freedom of that. Feel the weight lifted off. Levi grabbed it with both hands. He knew that following Jesus was worth turning away from his old life for. He left everything to follow Jesus. We pray that was true of of Umed over in Tajikistan. He responded, uh, Levi responded. We pray that Umed did as well with faith, not fear. And we know that the leper and the paralytic approached him with faith and not fear. You talk to the Muslim and they'll tell you that at the end, they hope that their good deeds will outweigh their bad deeds. And there's a bit of uncertainty there. Ask Muhammad and he'll tell you that he had no assurance of forgiveness. I'm no different from the other messengers. I have no idea what will happen to me. Surah 46, 9. Speak to the Jew. Uh, Well, I've tried to keep the Torah. I hope I've done enough. Speak to the Catholic. Uh, I've been to see the priest. Uh, I've done penance. I've been to mass. But many that I know still feel this great need for forgiveness or this weighing guilt. Speak to the Hindu. Well, you know, I've been seeking to improve my karma. And maybe next time round, uh, I will come back in a, in a better form. Speak to the Western psychiatrist. People are plagued by guilt. People are plagued by their deeply troubled thoughts and their need for forgiveness. It's true of university friends of, of mine. Um, 
in St Andrews in Scotland, uh, where I was a student, lots of students plunge into the sea at dawn on the 1st of May each year on May Day. And it's absolutely freezing, the North Sea, nothing more miserable. But you have to fully submerge yourself in the sea in order to wash away your sins of the previous semester. Do you see the error? Actually, these things can never deal with the internal. They just tinker with the external. Jesus says, come to me and you will know the ultimate verdict on your life today. You see, to know that I am forgiven, that God's final verdict on my life is already pronounced because of my trust in Jesus. Do you know, I I think that is the most precious of all the Christian truths. And it has implications for uh, my life now and for eternity. Just as we close now then, it may be that you're going through something very difficult at the moment. I know for a number that that is true. Let these verses encourage you that God sees, uh, that God cares, cares deeply. And ultimately that he is interested in our hearts. And so we can trust him in the pain and the suffering, in the heartbreak. He uses those things to bring us closer to himself. Though it may be so hard to see that at the moment. He cares for the state of our world. He deals with the state of our hearts so that we can respond with faith and not fear. Let me pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he comes to deal with the state of our hearts. We pray that we would be ever more conscious of our sin and ever more delight uh, in the Lord Jesus who pays the penalty for each of us. Thank you that in Jesus, the Son of Man, we don't have a distant, uncaring God but we have one who got involved in the mess and the pain of our world, who draws us to himself. Help us to see more of him this week and to walk closely with him. In Jesus' name, amen.